I'm Lister Sinclair. Tonight's Ideas programme on Harold Innes was originally broadcast last fall. Look at the time that Innes lives through, the horror of World War I, which he personally experiences, the Depression, World War II, another horror, the Holocaust, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then the emergence of the Cold War, which Innes is very conscious about and, and, and very alarmed about. Well, these are absolutely dreadful times in which Western civilization does literally seem to be falling apart. And Innes was amongst that handful who noticed and who tried to rise to the occasion and felt driven to go back to the beginning of history to try and uncover what the hell was going on here. Harold Innes made his name as an economic historian interested in the way that various commodity trades had influenced Canada's culture and institutions. Then, around 1940, he turned his attention to a new field of inquiry, communications. The Depression of the 30s, followed by a Second World War, had convinced him that Western civilization was quite literally collapsing. In fact, when McMaster, his old university, gave him an honorary degree in 1945, he told the convocation bluntly that civilization had collapsed, and he thought that the history of communications could tell us why. Each civilization, Innis eventually concluded, suffers from what he called the bias of communication. The idea was that all knowledge is shaped by the medium through which it is conveyed. Civilizations survive only by recognizing and resisting the biases to which this makes them subject. In the case of Western civilization, he believed, mass media were rapidly eroding this resistance. Modern societies, he warned, were exposed to a continuous, systematic, ruthless destruction of the elements of permanence essential to cultural activity. The function of a prophet isn't to predict destruction. The function of a prophet is to promote repentance. And it seems to me that even in his most pessimistic moods, he didn't give up his prophetic hope that it was possible for Western civilization to repent, for Western civilization to turn around. Harold Innes's hopes and fears for Western civilization and the writings on communications in which they're embodied are our subject tonight on ideas. The program is part two of a three-part series on Innes's thought by David Cayley. The occasion is the 100th anniversary of Innes's birth. David Cayley. In June of 1946, Oxford University invited Harold Innes to deliver six lectures. He was to address any subject in the economic history of the British Empire. The invitation was a welcome recognition of Innes's growing international reputation, but he did not, in the event, oblige his hosts with what they had asked for. When he finally stood in front of his audience in Oxford, early in the summer of 1948, his subject was empire, but not the British Empire. Instead, he began his presentation in the Egypt of 4000 BC, and then worked his way systematically through the civilizations of Babylonia, Greece, Rome, and the Christian Middle Ages. In each case, he related the character of the civilization in question to the media of communication it had used. Innes's interest in communications had begun in an immediate sense 
when studies he had made in the later 30s of the pulp and paper industry had led him to start looking into the history of the newspaper in the United States. But his interest had other sources as well. He had been concerned during the Depression that economics was becoming narrower, more dogmatic, and more short-term in its preoccupations. And he had begun to suspect that the reason for this lay outside economics, in the climate of opinion which disposed economists to ask certain questions and ignore others. A trip to the Soviet Union in 1945, followed by the emergence of the Cold War, intensified a lifelong interest in the problem of empire and the causes of inter-imperial rivalry. All these interests were at play in Oxford in 1948. Every medium of communication, Innes told his listeners, imparts a bias, either towards an emphasis on space and political organization, or towards an emphasis on time and religious organization. Cumbersome techniques of writing, like hieroglyphics, and a heavy medium like stone, as in ancient Egypt, yielded a priestly and essentially local society, preoccupied with questions of time. More flexible techniques of writing, like the Greek alphabet, and lighter, more portable media, like papyrus or paper, allowed later empires to extend themselves in space. Introduction of a second medium, he went on, tends to check the bias of the first and to create conditions suited to the growth of empire. So, for example, he argued that the Byzantine Empire had lasted as long as it did because of a balance between the biases of two media the spatial bias of the light but fragile papyrus on which its political organization was based, and the time bias which the more durable parchment codex exerted on its ecclesiastical organization. These are the terms in which Innes summarizes his argument in Empire and Communications, the book that resulted from the Oxford lectures. The idea can seem mechanical in paraphrase, but according to Alison Beale, Innes actually used it in a more flexible way than his summaries sometimes suggest. Alison Beale is a professor in the Department of Communications at Simon Fraser University. I think the bias has more than one element to it, so that it's not just the structural features of a particular medium. And in fact, I think some of the weakest exposition of that idea in Innes are in the places where he talks specifically about the characteristics of, of media such as papyrus or stone in ancient Egypt. So I think the bias of communication is made up of the material characteristics of the medium, the kinds of skills that are associated with mastering the forms of, of literacy and numeracy that are used in conjunction with those media, and then all the hierarchies of education, the court or theocracy in question, and the kinds of thinking that are seen to be valued by the extent to which they are recorded through those media. So I think, I think, I think that the bias of communication is um, an idea with a number of different elements, and it may, as Innes suggests, allow societies to persist over space to a greater extent than it helps them extend their reach through time or vice versa. But that the, the actual qualities of the media involved are 
not important by themselves. It's in conjunction with a number of other factors that the, the, the bias towards space or toward time will be established. The idea of bias in Innes is what Humpty Dumpty and Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass calls a portmanteau, a suitcase from which many meanings can be unpacked. It refers to the physical character of the media in question, but also, as Alison Beale has said, to the skills these media foster, the habits of mind they encourage, and the pattern of ownership and control to which they lend themselves. Bias brings certain concerns vividly before us and shades others out of sight. When Innes speaks of the disaster that may follow a belief in the obvious, or says that each civilization has its own methods of suicide, he is referring to this property of bias, that it may hide from us what we most need to know and make us fatally certain of what we should doubt. Robin Neal is a professor of economics at Carleton University and the author of A New Theory of Value, a study of Innes's economics. This is his sense of what Innes means by bias. The information environment which determines what we want is itself limited by the technique that we use in thinking. Our thoughts are controlled by the information flow and by the structure of information. We think about what we're taught to think about. And it is a very simple proposition. I mean, all real big, most important ideas are very simple. Harley Parker said to McLuhan one time, you know, if you've got a full test tube and you want to put something in, you have to take something out. It seems obvious. But, you know, you put foreign investment in Canada, what are you taking out? You put a radio, you put television in Canada, what disappears? So the simple idea in this case is that, uh, that we, we think about, we move in the direction in which we are taught to move. I lived on the prairies for 10 years, and I went on the prairies and I shot ducks. I was forever shooting ducks. I loved to go out in the prairies. And I thought I understood the prairies. I walked over it for days and days and days. And then I met an artist who painted the prairies, and he was always painting shacks. And, and it, it didn't, I thought this was a silly thing to do. He said, why are you painting these shacks? It doesn't look like the prairies. Well, he said, you know, that's what I see. So the next time I went out, my eyes were open. The prairies are littered with shacks. Shacks for people to stand in to catch the bus. Shacks for people to stand in in the fields to get out of the weather. Shacks to hold wheat out there. Shacks to hold equipment. Shacks for whatever you want to do. They, it is littered with shacks. But I hadn't seen them until I was taught to see them. Preconception is everything when it comes to assessing a situation in order to know what to do. And preconception is determined by the limits put upon the information that we see. We're really living in a, 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 a mental construct, and we act on the expectations that are generated by this thing, and that we think is reality. The nature of people's expectations, are they rational or not, is a critical question in economics. Innes's concept of bias addresses this question and indicates to Robin Neal that in his communication works, Innes was extending rather than abandoning his work as an economist. In fact, Neil believes that Innes's later writings will eventually be seen as his most lasting contribution to economics. 
An example is Innes' discussion of the relationship between radio and the Great Depression of the 30s. The radio comes into existence. People get a lot of information immediately, which they are not accustomed to dealing with. They become uncertain. Too much information at once. Uncertainty uh, generates a sense that things are risky, and they are risk-averse, and they stop investing. The radio creates an information environment in which that depression occurs. That's the kind of thing that Innes is talking about. He, it does come back to economics. And Innes is asking the question, what kind of judgments are you going to get if you get an environment which is controlled by a particular kind of information, which will be determined by the instruments of observation, the instruments of reporting observations that we have? Harold Innes is often taken to be one of the founders of the new academic discipline of communications. Innes himself, however, disliked academic specialization and frequently deplored the fragmentation of knowledge. So it makes some sense, I think, to see him, as Robin Neal does, as someone who enlarged economics rather than as someone who helped to create a new branch of knowledge. It is part of the task of the social scientist, Innes had written in the 30s, to test the limits of his tools and to indicate their possibilities, particularly at a period where he is tempted to discard them altogether. In his communication studies, he did just this, testing the range and limits of an economist's toolkit in a field that had previously been beyond the reach of such tools. The term communication, at the time Innes was writing, still mainly evoked the sense of ideas effortlessly conveyed from mind to mind. He gave it a material grounding, drawing attention to the resistance, distortion, and inequality that are actually involved. This materialist account of communication allowed Innes a new look at a problem that had preoccupied him from the very beginning of his intellectual career, the nature of empire. The existence of empire, he says, is an indication of the efficiency of communication, meaning by efficiency the extent to which a variety of media balance and support one another. If bias is not checked and corrected in this way, the result is what he calls a monopoly of knowledge. Monopoly, for Innes, is always ultimately fatal to civilization because it generates an illusion of self-sufficiency, and that illusion cuts the centers of empire off from the sources of variation, innovation, and renewal on which their continued vitality depends. Monopoly makes itself the final authoritative truth to which all other truths must bow. Innes got a taste of this kind of arrogance in 1916 when he arrived in England during the First World War and discovered that as a colonial, he belonged to a lesser order than his British masters. Later, at the University of Chicago, he discovered in the writings of American economist Thorsten Veblen a way of thinking about this problem that he found fruitful. Veblen, like Innes, came from a pioneer farming background. He was born in Wisconsin in 1857 to Norwegian immigrants, and he advanced the idea that the creative vigor on which a civilization depends for its renewal comes from that civilization's never completely subdued margins. Ian Parker is a professor of economics at the University of Toronto. He has studied this idea in Veblen's work. He talks about the intellectual preeminence of the Jews in modern Europe. And his argument there 
is that the person from the backwoods culture moves in with a very powerful cultural inheritance held in a clay pot. And he's using that as an image of the Jews in modern Europe. They've been able to keep that heritage intact because they haven't been able to participate fully in the society. Then in the 18th and the 19th centuries, when some of the barriers break down, they moved in, still with this relatively autonomous, independent culture, to the main society. What happens is you've got this tremendous cultural creativity, but the clay pot is smashed by the machines of progress, thereby unleashing all of this creativity. So Veblen sees being marginal as a potential source of creativity. Innes developed this idea at length in Empire and Communications, mentioning numerous cases in which empires have been subverted or renewed by innovations which began at their margins. The ancestor of our modern alphabet was first spread by Phoenician traders operating on the fringes of the Egyptian and Babylonian civilizations. Buddhism developed at the edge of the Brahmin monopoly of knowledge in ancient India. The revival of learning during Europe's Dark Ages moved eastward from the Celtic margins of the old Roman Empire. Religious freedom in modern Europe appeared first in Holland, where the spell of dogmatism was weakest, economic freedom in Scotland and the American colonies, and so on. John Watson is the author of a doctoral thesis on Harold Innes called Marginal Man. He thinks that the idea of marginality was crucial to Innes's sense of what he was doing as an intellectual. He believed that if you had a very well-developed culture and institutions, that to some extent, in the end, it would turn on itself because it would, uh, after generations, become a self-referring realm where all the questions of the day uh, were answered from within inside the worldview that had been generated out of this place and this culture. And the problem with that was that uh, to break such a paradigm, uh, you had to go outside of the, of the thought patterns of the worldview that had developed it in the first place. And that's why I think he put as the hero to his project the role of the marginal intellectual who perhaps uh, had borrowed in perfectly some of the parts of the paradigms or some of the ideas that existed in the center, but had to have a new look at things and wasn't burdened by uh, having the answers to the questions already provided uh, to him. Innes set out to have this new look at things from the very beginning of his career. In his writings on economic history, he tried to understand Canada on its own terms, rather than viewing it in the borrowed light of classical British political economy. He succeeded so brilliantly that by the time he was appointed head of political economy at the University of Toronto in 1937, he was himself a centre of very considerable power and influence in Canadian academic life. His later writings, however, brought him a renewed experience of marginality. The material was new and unfamiliar to his readers and audiences, and the way in which he assembled it, says John Watson, was somewhat eccentric. The method of composition that Innes used was uh, to uh, have a room set up in his house uh, where he would spread out books like waves and, and read books jumbled together. He might have 12 or 20 books on the go, make copious notes, photocopy the notes, 
and we're talking about very primitive photocopying technology back then. And then he would uh, cut and paste. He would take the preceded notes uh, from these books he w had read. He would cut them up, jumble them together, add bridges, and uh, voila, you had uh, the communications work. But it indicated a certain degree of paranoia. He didn't. He wasn't trained as a classical scholar. He wasn't able to work in the original languages. So he had to stay very close to his authorities, to the scholars that were recognized as experts in the field. Innes's style of presentation in his later works has attracted, over the years, a variety of interpretations. John Watson stresses the element of guardedness and insecurity in his procedures. Haste and an obsessive effort to be comprehensive, even in the limited space of a lecture, must also have been factors. Marshall McLuhan saw Innes's style as a conscious technique and not just a product of necessity. Empire and Communications to McLuhan consisted of a series of what he called figure-ground flashes, speeded up to the rate of cinematic montage. Others have claimed that Innes must be read as a poet. Whatever is the case, Innes's last books and lectures were not well understood people walked out of his presidential address to the Royal Society of Canada in 1947. The audience for his lectures at Oxford in 1948 fell off every night, and his reviews were disappointing. The British magazine The Economist found the style of political economy in the modern state, quote, even more atrocious than is normally to be expected of North American academics. Closer to home, the Canadian Historical Review thought that the bias of communication presented its readers with at best, a mere series of half-truths. John Watson. There's no doubt in Innes's uh, later work that he was working alone, that he was looked upon as a crank uh, who had gotten ahead of himself. I don't think most of the stuff would have been published except it was coming from this man who had made his reputation in the Staples works and who was very senior in the academic community and who had the opportunity to give addresses that people had to listen to. But uh, they certainly didn't understand them. The reviews were uh, generally negative. There are uh, readers' reports from a number of the uh, later works that were sent out by publishers, and they're almost universally negative. If there's any positive uh, commentary in them, it's, uh, you know, uh, phrased in terms of these are suggestive works, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, read the undertext. I don't have a bloody idea what he's talking about. Empire and Communications is a study of the forces that preserve and stabilize civilization, and equally of the forces that disturb and destabilize it. Civilizations can survive, Innes says in his introduction, only through a concern with their limitations. Bias and monopoly reflect the tendency to overreach. Balance represents the saving grace of self-knowledge and self-limitation. And balance, in Innes's writings, is the highest good. It describes the stable condition that obtains when the biases of various media counteract each other. But it also reflects an ethical ideal, a standard by which to live. Jim Carey is a professor of journalism at Columbia University in New York, 
and a longtime champion of Innes's work in the United States. Innes always wanted to keep what are, in effect, the contradictions of experience in full view. That is, there was always a tension. And that notion that he found exemplified in Greek philosophy, not so much of the middle way, but that you've got to combine alternatives. You've got to live with contradictions. You can't find some fuzzy middle. You've got to learn how to bring together science and religion, local knowledge and general knowledge, time and space. These are contradictory, not complementary demands. And he tried to point out ways in which we could maintain a fruitful tension between them so that one didn't dominate the other. Innes was opposed to the building of, uh, of systems. Every formal theoretical system always isolates some principle, utility, romance, power, as the central element in the system. But what Innes was saying is that for all the glories of these systems, romance won't help you in a lifeboat. Uh, utility won't help you at a wedding. That is, life is too varied, its experience is too wide to be satisfied by any system of institutions or any system of thought that isolates one quality. It's only in the achievement of relationship that one can go forward. Innes found what he thought was the highest expression of balance, or fruitful relationship between contradictory forces, in ancient Greece. In a book which Innes very much admired, called The Crucifixion of Intellectual Man, Eric Havelock wrote, There was a golden age in Athens, when men, as they walked the streets, lived in two minds at once, guided by the unconscious heroisms of an epic tradition, yet roused to vivid thought by the science of an awakening intellect. Havelock's words, I think, exactly catch Innes's sense of the glory of Athens as well. Judith Stamps teaches political theory at the University of Victoria and is the author of a forthcoming book on Innes, McLuhan, and the Frankfurt School called Unthinking Modernity. He thought that there was a very brief period in Greek life where there was a balance between the older oral poetic tradition and a new written tradition. And he thought that that uh, balance created a moment of tremendous creativity in Greece. The oral tradition had been fairly fixed. Uh, it had done a couple of good things. It had really um, enhanced uh, the development of memory in the society because everything the society learned had to be uh, kept in memory. That was a good thing. But at the same time, it limited people in what, what they were able to do. Um, with the written tradition, he thought, uh, the burden of having to remember everything was removed and people could experiment a little. They could experiment with different forms of writing that were slightly less memorable. The, me the oral tradition was all poetic. It was all rhyming and so on. It had to have certain forms. The new tradition could take off in more uh, prosaic directions, in the direction of prose. And as such, it could do things like uh, more interesting scientific discussion and so on. And he thought at that point uh, there was a kind of a new a flourishing of individualism in Greece, something that is difficult in an oral tradition. But it was an individualism that hadn't still become a capital I individualism, so it didn't dominate everything. 
That's basically what Greece meant to him. You had this flourishing of individual culture, you had this flourishing of drama and philosophy and uh, painting and the emergence of perspective and so on that came as these two cultures, the oral and the written, met one another for a brief period of time where neither dominated the other. It created a kind of flexibility. It created, gave some new tools to use for self-expression. Innes, in later years, sometimes described himself as a proponent of the oral tradition. What he generally meant, I think, was not the pure orality of societies without writing, like Greece in its heroic age, but a situation in which there was a proper balance between the oral and the written, such as he supposed had existed at Athens. Alison Beale. There can be monopoly in oral traditions, and Innes does give examples of that in, you know, in various um, theocracies and uh, in, in uh, traditional forms of government that depended on oral tradition and designated speakers, and they can be immensely hierarchical. So speech alone is not a guarantee of participation and democracy. So yeah, the element of, of balance, and I mean, it, it isn't really even balance. I think, I'm not even sure that balance is the right word. Because Innes is always dealing with historical conflict and, and power relations. It's not as if there's some nice kind of, you know, equilibrium that everybody's happy with. It's really far more the ability of strong forces to challenge other strong forces. And they will, you know, there will always be an overpowering of one by the other. In Athens, this overpowering began to occur, in Innes's view, during the later 4th century BC. By then, he felt, the point of balance had been passed, and writing had begun to acquire an unhealthy predominance. The change was typified for Innes in the contrast between the writings of Plato and those of his pupil, Aristotle. Plato's work is in the form of written dialogues, which attempt to preserve something of the character of a lively discussion. The form emphasizes participation and suggests that the great questions are never finally settled. Truth is tentative, subject to revision in subsequent dialogues. Aristotle, on the other hand, casts his work in a more definitive form. He adopts a tone of authority and thereby creates what Innes calls grooves of thought, channels, he also says, in which thought is forced to run. Innes, in his economic writings, had drawn attention to what he called the rigidities that lock economies into certain patterns of production. Grooves of thought are mental rigidities, the precursors of the channels of steel, asphalt, and optical fiber in which Western civilization will later be forced to run. The essays Harold Innes wrote during the last ten years of his life convey at times an impression of dizzying and disorienting velocity, the sense of a world reeling from one catastrophe to another, unable to find any stable point of orientation or rest. There is a note now and then of suppressed panic in his austere telegraphic prose, a feeling of acceleration and instability. The mass circulation newspaper, he says, has been responsible for a ruthless shattering of language. He speaks of the cruelty of mechanized communication 
and says that it has led to a systematic destruction of elements of permanence essential to culture. Thought, he claims, has been paralyzed. What Innes thought had happened, in the most general sense, was that the mechanization of communication had allowed an unbalancing of the relations between time and space. Mass media dominated vast spaces, while time, he said, was cut into, quote, precise fragments suited to the needs of the engineer and the accountant. His primary example, and the medium of which he made the most detailed analysis, was the mass circulation newspaper, which emerged at the end of the 19th century. The power and reach of the modern newspaper, in Innes's view, was founded, first of all, on a set of linked technological changes. The use of wood pulp in papermaking drastically reduced the cost of newsprint. The speed and capacity of printing presses increased. The telegraph allowed information to be gathered more widely and more quickly, and so on. This led to the creation of national markets and the formation of chains. One of the consequences, in Innes's opinion, was the creation of a climate of opinion in which the First World War became possible. Judith Stamps. The press had played a very important role in what he felt was keeping people's emotions at a boiling point continuously so that they were ready to mindlessly uh, follow any uh, impulse toward violence that it kept people at, at the level just below violence constantly. And he thought that, interestingly enough, it did so not simply out of some kind of um, sadistic perverseness, but just out of the logic of its own economy. The fact that the press is a commodity that has to sell itself every single day of the week. And it turns out, when you look at its economy, that one of the ways it can do that best is by sensationalizing sensationalizing makes it possible for it to sell itself because the bold headline sells, but an unhappy after effect is the bold headline also gets people emotionally wound up in a way that it's possible for them to mindlessly follow state policies that might be ultimately destructive of their lives. In his analysis of the link between World War I and sensationalism in the press, Innes stressed the content of mass media. He was equally attentive at other times to the form, which he believed, for example, had powerful effects on language. In his writings on empire, Innes had seen vernaculars, or everyday languages, as sources of popular independence and resistance to centralized control. Modern mass media, he argued, had been responsible for a mechanization of the vernacular, or, in other words, a takeover of the means of independent thought, Ideas were for sale, ready-made. This did a couple of things. One of them was that it discouraged people from conversing with each other about politics or anything else because it did their conversing for them. It defined things for them and consequently rendered them more passive. And he felt that in order to have a really vibrant um, culture, you had to have people who were used to discussing things together and who were able to constitute themselves as a public orally. It also encouraged a very rigid notion uh, by using very rigid notions of definition itself. People in the press are always trying to prove who's right and who's wrong, trying to present arguments in order to dominate or to avoid from, you know, avoid being dominated. And that that acted as a kind of teaching mechanism for people, but it taught them the wrong things. 
It taught them to value the wrong things about communication. It taught them to value to value worrying about who was wrong and who was right in a conversation, rather than thinking in terms of a collective search for truth, even if you never got there, just a collective continual search for truth. That's not the sort of thing that we get in the everyday press. We get a very a deep concern for um, proof, capital P, proof, of rightness and wrongness. Mechanized communication, Innes said, had enormously increased the difficulty of thought. The problem, obviously, was general, but in Innes's view, it was expressed in its most acutely destructive form in the United States. The United States had a written constitution, which had become the sacred scripture of the American civic religion. It guaranteed untrammeled freedom to the press, and that unquestioned good, in Innes's view, had opened the door to numerous evils. Freedom of the press under the Bill of Rights, he wrote, accentuated the printed tradition, destroyed freedom of speech, and broke relations with the oral tradition of Europe. It legitimized vast monopolies of communication, and those monopolies, Innes believed, were now threatening Canada's very existence. Cultural life in Canada, he said, was subject to constant hammering from American commercialism. We can survive, he went on, only by taking persistent action at strategic points against American imperialism in all its attractive guises. Richard Noble is a professor of political science at the University of Winnipeg. Commercial communications monopolies use the freedom granted them under the American Bill of Rights to essentially play to what Innes saw as the lowest common denominator in our culture and to propagate ideas derived from the written constitution of the United States as uh, universal truths um, that should be characteristic of all free and civilized society. So that's one of the reasons why it threatened Canadian liberties. Now, another, I think, more kind of philosophical problem that Innes had with freedom of the press as it was experienced in the United States was that it tended to override the oral tradition in certain important ways, and particularly with in respect of the courts. Innes saw the, the common law courts of Canada and indeed the United States as deriving from the oral tradition and retaining certain very important dimensions of the oral tradition, that is, for instance, in trials, testimony is taken as an important way of determining the truth, uh, oral testimony, that the, the procedures are all related to the oral examination of witnesses and evidence and so on. So the common law and the common law courts embody the oral tradition, and for Innes, because of this, they embody certain very important liberties. One of these, for instance, would be the right to a fair trial. Now, the Bill of Rights and its granting of the abstract, uh, absolute right to freedom of the press can override the um, more concrete liberties preserved by the common law tradition. To take an example, the trial of uh, Bernardo in Ontario, where almost all information with respect to that trial and the trial of his, his alleged uh, conspirator was completely suppressed it was suppressed, I think, largely in the interests of preserving the accused's right to a fair trial. So 
our, our general right to freedom of information and uh, to freedom of expression was restricted in order to preserve the sort of concrete right of one individual to a fair trial. Now, in the United States, if you, took, if you look at a, a similar kind of trial, the, the O.J. Simpson case, what's happened is that the abstract general right to freedom of speech has over, overrides the individual's right to a fair trial. Commercial communications monopolies have argued successfully that they have a right to exploit all the information with respect to that trial to their own ends. So Innes, I think, saw general abstract rights to freedom of expression as a serious threat to the more concrete, historically embodied rights that existed within the oral traditions of the Canadian Constitution. Since Richard Noble made this statement, the Supreme Court of Canada has overturned the centuries-old rule he refers to, that the right to a fair trial always trumps free speech. The court was considering a Toronto judge's decision to prevent the CBC from broadcasting the television movie The Boys of St. Vincent on the grounds that it compromised the right of the men portrayed in the film to a fair trial. The Supreme Court found this ban unjustified and instructed the country's judges in future to accord free speech and the right to a fair trial equal footing. The broad Canadian consensus that I would guess now supports such a ruling is an illustration of the trend which already alarmed Innes 40 years ago. The oral tradition to Innes signified living thought, achieved and constantly modified in community. Oral discussion, he wrote, inherently involves personal contact and a consideration for the feelings of others and is in sharp contrast with the cruelty of mechanized communication. Textbooks and standardized examinations bothered him throughout his university career by their suggestion that knowledge had some final resting state in which it could be preserved and recalled. Richard Noble. In a written tradition, which is characteristic of space-biased societies, arguments, assertions of truth that are written tend to take on a kind of dogmatic character such that, let's say I make an argument about the superiority of the American Constitution. That's a claim that's made really within the American Constitution itself. That becomes, because it's written, that becomes a kind of article of faith which uh, acquires a certain dogmatic force within a political culture. And so large, powerful nations with written constitutions can deduce uh, habits of thinking about themselves um, that are uh, superior um, and imperialistic in, in their character. Whereas nations which draw upon an oral tradition or cultures which draw upon an oral tradition I think he tended to think that these cultures would be much more flexible about the moral force of their uh, constitutions, about the, the central principles that define their social life. Um, oral traditions are more open, in Innes' view, more flexible about truth. They're more oriented towards the discovery of truth than the assertion of some kind of final, absolute uh, version of the truth. So. I think that Innes believed that insofar as a nation could retain a constitutional uh, idea that was linked to the oral tradition, that it would be less imperialistic. 
particularly in the context of the of the 20th, the mid 20th century, when, when space bias was a common feature of Western societies. Space bias was generated, in Innes's opinion, by the vast reach of the mechanized word, both through print and broadcast media. Technological advance in communication, he wrote, implies a narrowing of the range from which material is distributed and a widening of the range of reception, so that a large number receive but are unable to make any response. This passivity, he believed, would prove in the end fatal to civilization. A living culture required continuous revision. What he had admired in the Platonic dialogue, for example, was its incompleteness, its openness to further elaboration. Unfinished perspectives and unanswered questions were for him the very breath of cultural life. He doubted they would survive in the increasingly saturated space of mechanized communications. History, Innes said, is a web of which the warp and the woof are space and time, woven in an uneven pattern. A change in one will inevitably produce a change in the other. And Innes felt that the powerful spatial bias of modern media had led to a general neglect of questions of time. One sign of this for him was the divorce of science from ethics in the university curriculum. Ethics, according to Judith Stamps, being preeminently a question of time. An ethic is something which comes out of a cultural development, and a cultural development is something that happens over time. How we come to value things can only be explained by our origins, by the origins of those particular values. If we want to understand why you value something, we look at your past to see how you've developed. We want to understand how British culture or any culture has come to value certain things. We look at its historical development. That tells us two things. It tells us that an ethic is something which is an historical thing to start with, and it also tells us that different cultures have different ethical outlooks. So that time is embedded in the very concept of an ethic. Ethos, the Greek word from which ethics derives, originally meant character. And it was character that Innes worried about in his final writings. The historical character of Canada as a British country unscarred by revolution and distinguished from the United States by an unbroken continuity with the civilization of Western Europe, and the historical character of the university as an independent institution. These characters, he felt, were gradually being erased by an exclusive and unbalanced emphasis on the present and a corresponding forgetfulness of the claims of the future and the past. So, in 1950, speaking at the University of New Brunswick, he made what he called a plea for time. James Carey explains what he thinks Innes meant, beginning with a quotation from Czech novelist Milan Kundera's The Book of Laughter and Forgetting. He says, The struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And so Kundera's point was, of course, we have had to struggle, in his own case, to maintain our connections to Western Europe, to see ourselves as writers, as working within a Western literary tradition, heirs of the Enlightenment, heirs of the entire Christian tradition, in a system that would use language to obliterate memory and to obliterate those historic connections. 
that seems to me is the point that's central in Innes. If you have a society in which there are forms of communication that will not allow for the cultivation of remembrance, then you will not gain the necessary continuity to hold out against the forces of power. There was a time when in many churches there was a rule that a clock, a watch, would not be allowed in, on, or around the church because it violated God's sense of time, eternity. The clock kept track of today. The world of the newspaper is the world of today. It's a one-day world. It assembles the world at 5 o'clock on Monday afternoon, and then it's gone. It reassembles it on Tuesday. It's a series of disconnected, moment-by-moment snapshots. And it is the fact that you can print it in snapshots (laughs) that allows you to transmit it and send it so far. And so that, that each of these media of communication have been lighter, more exportable. You can move them around in space. You can ingest wider areas within them. But the price of doing that is making them less memorable, less repeatable. Let's take the extreme of television. Every study we had that I've ever seen simply says that television is, for all its power, is not a memorable medium. People don't remember it. Let us go to the telegraph. The telegraph, if you look at the stream of telegraphic speech, it eliminates everything because words cost money on the telegraph. So telegraphic messages may convey information. Your father died at six. Stop. But it doesn't convey poetry. It doesn't convey memory. It doesn't convey the richness of experience. Innes saw knowledge being mechanized. We could transmit it further, and we could transmit it faster at the price of making it less memorable, less retainable. It was as if we lived in a one-day world where everything we learn today we forgot tomorrow, only to learn something new. Harold Innes's work in communications was cut short by his death of cancer in 1952. He was only 58 years old. His last years were shadowed by the Cold War, by his growing alarm about the corrosive influence of the United States on Canada, and by his fear that Western civilization itself was committing suicide. His final essays, as you have heard, reflect this darkening mood. And yet, James Carey says, they are for him, finally, hopeful. It becomes, for all of us, harder and harder as we get older (laughs) to maintain hope because we so much identify hope with ourselves. And after all, when we're gone, hope goes with us. And writers tend to be this way, even very great ones. I think, for example, that a writer to which I'd compare Innes is Orwell. You can look, read the last works in terms of the bleak despair, let us say, of 1984. But this is a book, it seems to me, of profound hope, compromised very deeply by the fact Orwell was dying when he wrote it. And Innes' later work, for me, have the kind of anxiety and rush and fear of a man struggling to get it done before he was dead, and also in the midst of an accelerating Cold War which came out of World War II. Everyone 
who lived through Innes's time, it seems to me, was badly affected by it. But if I contrast him to a thinker like Lewis Mumford, I find a kind of continuous affirmation in uh, Innes. There is certainly affirmation in Innes. His whole life, in a sense, was a passionate affirmation. But there remains, as a separate question, his prophecy for civilization in the age of information. Here, his pessimism is undeniable. But there is, as Nietzsche said, pessimism from strength and pessimism from weakness. Andrew Wernick, a professor at Trent University, whom you'll hear more from in the final program of this series, thinks that Innes offers those who continue to read him pessimism from strength. Pessimism from weakness is just where you sort of throw up your hands in, in horror at the way things are and you sort of shuffle off and do something else, close the doors, close the windows, and sort of watch the box. Pessimism from strength means uh, looking, looking hard into the nature of things, even on their, even on their blackest, bleakest side, uh, and being able to speak them, being able to see them, and then being able to sort of go on in some ways. And I think that in his, in his own mind, was trying to represent a kind of pessimism from strength. And I think it's only insofar as we can come from that kind of subjective point of view that we will be able to find Innes particularly sympathetic. Innes said in 1945 that Western civilization had collapsed. Perhaps, on his definition, it really had. Perhaps today we are living in a new and unprecedented condition, which is distinctly not what Innes meant by Western civilization. To me, that's precisely what makes him interesting. He's an honest witness who can tell us something about what has actually happened to our world. And he's a critical thinker whom one can emulate even after Western civilization. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part two of a profile of Harold Innes by David Cayley. The series honors the centenary of Innes's birth. It concludes next week at this time with a program about Innes's philosophy of knowledge and his views on the proper character of universities. Technical production of tonight's program was by Lorne Tulk. Production assistants were Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. Thanks to Daniel Drach, Bill Buxton and Alison Moss. A transcript of the series is available by calling Radio Works at our toll-free number 1-800-363-1530. That's 1-800-363-1530. And for a free reading list on Innis, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Thank you.